Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. This podcast contains references to sexual violence that may be disturbing to some listeners. It's November 1891, and in the rugged country about 20 miles northwest of Mount Gambia in South Australia, a mysterious animal is on the prowl. Aboriginal shearers working on grazier John Cameron's property at German Creek come running to him one night. They're scared because they've seen a strange wild animal they say doesn't belong in Australia. This beast, they tell him, has so frightened their dogs that the mutts are cowering in their hut. The grazier takes no notice until the next night when it happens again. This time John Cameron finds tracks which, while they look like that of a dog, are far larger, measuring four inches across. Nine months later, Also at German Creek, sheep station manager John Livingston is told by an Aboriginal man that a strange animal is stalking the property. The man says the creature is a very large cat and that he's positive no such animal is indigenous to Australia. Then, in December 1892, at the nearby town of Tantanula, Walter Taylor and his wife are driving home in their horse buggy when they see a strange beast slinking across the road about 300 yards distant. Mr. Taylor, by all accounts a reliable fellow, is positive it isn't a dingo. This creature, he says, is brown with stripes, about two foot six tall and three feet long with a long sweeping tail that brings its overall length to about five feet. It disappears into a stand of thick bush known as Nitschke's tea tree. Several property owners now come forward to report finding sheep that have been devoured, leaving only bloody skins and bones that have been licked clean. 
A man named Long says he found one of his bullocks with the flesh eaten from its back. This phantom predator is soon dubbed the Tantanula Tiger. Mount Gambier Clothing Store, C. McKenzie & Co. cashes in by posting a £50 reward for the cat's capture in newspaper ads that also promote men's suits perfect for about town and tiger hunting. It's a bit of fun, but Tantanula locals are genuinely worried that it's only a matter of time before the enemy of their flocks becomes a man-eater. There's only one thing to do. Gather men and rifles and find and slay this monster. I'm Michael Adams and this is Forgotten Australia. Australians aren't strangers to big cat stories. Near where I live, in Katoomba in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, a black panther is frequently seen, with more than 550 separate reports in the past 20 years. There have been so many big cat sightings in Lancefield, Victoria, that there's a large monument to the beast in the centre of town. Then there are the Queensland tiger and the West Australian cougar, among the many other big felines reported since the 1880s. The explanations for these sightings over more than a century vary from tigers escaping from travelling zoos to cougar mascots being released by American servicemen stationed in Australia during World War II. Plenty of people believe that big cats stalk the Australian countryside. But there's little physical evidence. Photos are scarce and carcasses are never found, leading sceptics to conclude the sightings are the product of overexcited imaginations. That's why the case of the Tantanula tiger stands out, because two very different monsters were actually caught. In May 1893, the big cat roaming the South Australian countryside was enthusiastically reported in newspapers all across Australia. The Tantanula tiger name stuck, despite witness Walter Taylor emphatically saying the animal he saw didn't look anything like a tiger. But locals remembering that Leon's travelling circus and menagerie had lost a tiger cub in the area around 1880 played into the tiger theory. Back then, the circus had searched for the cat but didn't find it. Now it seemed the cub hadn't just survived but had thrived, going undetected in the rugged swamps, scrub and bush of this remote coastal region. South Australia was divided into skeptics and believers. The newspaper South Australian Register poo-pooed the tiger cub story and reckoned Walter Taylor's account of seeing a striped beast wasn't credible. Bunyips, sea serpents and the Tantanula tigers are animals to be believed in when captured, but not before, one of their editors wrote. Yet the Border Watch newspaper was convinced. As all doubts as to the existence of the animal may be laid aside, the question arises who is to arrange for his capture or destruction. That man was property manager John Livingston, who was convinced that the sheep station he managed was at the centre of tiger activity. Livingston persuaded nearly two dozen men to join him in a search of the German Creek property. The Narracourt Herald mockingly wished them success. If it is a tiger, we hope that it is captured alive and that a seat may be found for him in Parliament to keep ambitious crisis mongers and offer seekers in order. 
Armed with rifles, Livingston and the men set out on horseback from Mount Gambia on Wednesday the 17th of March at 8.30am. The posse included Walter Taylor, a black tracker, two police officers and two reporters, one from the Border Watch and the other from the Southeastern Star. News of their search preceded them and everyone they met had a comment, sometimes encouraging, often jocular. One lubberly fellow, reported the Border Watch, was actually unmannerly enough to shout out in forcible bush language his opinion of the probable success of the hunt. The posse reached the house of a boundary rider on the property Livingston managed at German Creek at around 11am. They were now in the centre of the area in which the tiger sightings had taken place. After lunch, Livingston led the men to Nitschke's tea tree where Walter Taylor had seen the tiger in December. The men broke into small groups and took up positions all around this patch of bush, while riflemen were posted at strategic points waiting to shoot the tiger. One man climbed a tree for a better look and immediately became the butt of good-natured jokes about him being a scaredy-cat. Just as the men were about to start beating the bush, there was a tremendous roar. Their faces went white until they realised they'd heard a thunderclap. The men walked into the tea tree from the south and beat the grass from the north, shouting and yelling to scare anything towards the riflemen. A dog with one of the groups got the scent of something and ran into a thicket. Then it jumped back in fright. There was something dark moving in the bushes. The excited hunters closed in and found a black swan on its nest. Another group of men set a small fire to scare the tiger out of hiding. Wallabies bounded ahead of the men and the flames, but nothing else tried to escape. When the bush beaters met up with the waiting riflemen, no one had seen a tiger, though the man in the tree reported he'd seen a duck. John Livingston wasn't giving up. They would next search an even denser stand of tea tree to the south. But then rain poured down and the men retreated to camp. There, they had another spot of lunch and some tea, while a bottle of Glenlivet whiskey was passed around so that each man might have an internal lining to fortify him against the cold and wet. Around the fire, the men retold their tiger tales, with Walter Taylor saying that just two weeks ago near here, he'd seen big paw prints around a hole in the ground. When the rain eased off, the men went to look at the hole where Taylor had seen the tracks. It turned out to be a wombat burrow, and the tracks were gone, washed away by the rain. Giving up, the men began to ride home, with a few of them taking pot shots at swans and missing. The police inspector who'd accompanied the search party now told the press men that there wasn't any evidence a tiger cub had ever escaped and that he reckoned what Walter Taylor had seen was a fox. It is not probable that another hunt will be organised till some further evidence of the strange animal in the locality is forthcoming, wrote the Border Watch's correspondent. But the Tantanula tiger was celebrated in verse by a poet calling himself Rio de Janeiro at a meeting of the Mount Gambia Literary Society. By mountain path or fireside hearth, weird story do they tell, of trembling child or rabbit wild, or fleet marsupial. They tell how one without his gun a monster striped had seen, whose glaring eye in sunlit sky his terror great had been. The poet wrote of the animal's mysterious identity. A wolf it is, or is it this, a fierce boar in the bush? A fox, a cat, on Nula's flat, hush, timid maidens, hush. 
spark such a roar ne'er heard before. A tiger, short is he. A tiger's spring has cleared the ring, the tracks are his alone. A tiger's claws, a tiger's jaws, to crush and gnaw the bone. The poem went on to gently mock the locals' fear of the tiger and how the hopes of the district had rested on the brave men searching the tea tree who then fled without firing a shot when the rains came down. It was all good for the jesters to have a laugh, but something was still out there killing livestock. Recently, the carcasses of several sheep have been found mutilated near Kula in a manner unusual for a wild dog, reported the Border Watch in July 1893. The residents there are convinced that whether the animal that does the mischief be a tiger or not, it is not a dog. They hold, and we may presume they are better able to judge than any individual who may sit and sneer in his office, that some strange animal is at large in the rough country there. In September 1893, farmer William Johns of Vulcan Park was awoken at 2am by his dogs and chickens going crazy. He found big paw prints measuring four and a half inches across, and a policeman the next day took plaster casts, which he sent to Adelaide Zoo. The director of the zoo compared them with those of a tiger and found it was likely whatever was stalking the Tantanula countryside wasn't feline, but canine. Then, in October 1893, the nightmare was over. The beast was dead, and it wasn't feline or canine, but porcine. A man from the town of Millicent named Kenny Matheson succeeded in poisoning a huge feral pig that he reckoned had killed 200 sheep a year on his property alone. It had even recently completely skinned one of his horses from the chest to the knee. Mr Matheson said this pig had hidden in tea tree scrub by day and hunted livestock by night. After many unsuccessful attempts to shoot and poison the beast, he finally got it by mixing a paste of flour, sugar and phosphorus and pouring it over a dead sheep. The poisoned boar, he said, had stood three foot nine in life and was over nine foot long from snout to tail and had sharp nine inch tusks. Kenny Matheson sent these tusks to the Express and Telegraph newspaper along with a letter describing how he'd killed the monster. I feel quite satisfied, he wrote, that in killing this pig I have killed the tiger that was doing so much damage to my sheep and weak cattle in the district of Tantanula. The newspaper reckoned he was right. It appears as though Mr Matheson has achieved the killing of the Tantanula tiger. Except he hadn't. Something continued killing sheep and leaving big paw prints. In August 1894, John Livingston's 17-year-old nephew, Donald Smith, was riding the German Creek property near Lake Bonnie, looking after lambs and ewes, when he saw a flock of sheep in distress. Investigating, he saw, at a distance of just a few yards, a large, strange animal walking firmly towards the tea trees, with a full-grown sheep struggling in its mouth. This beast saw Smith and laid the sheep down, but used its big paws to pin it firmly to the ground. Smith had never seen a tiger, but he felt sure he was now looking directly at one. It stood two and a half to three feet off the ground, was four or five feet long, and had dull stripes all over its light brown body, with much more distinctive stripes on its head and face. Frightened, Smith rode to his uncle's house at Burrungal and John Livingston sent him to the Mount Gambier police to demand that they do something. 
The inspector in charge dispatched two mounted constables and a black tracker to search for the tiger. These men went to the tea tree stands and spent a day beating the bush. While the search the year before had been a farce, this one yielded something tangible near where Donald Smith had seen the tiger. The soil showed claw marks and evidence of a struggle. Following tracks, the policeman and the Aboriginal tracker found small tufts of wool hung up on ferns, leading them to believe the beast had carried a sheep this way. Further along, ferns had been broken and bent. The three men followed the trail for a mile and a half before losing it. Returning the next day, the men picked up the trail again in the range and followed it down to the low country, finding more blood-stained wool. They also found a big paw print, measuring five inches wide and deep enough to suggest that this animal was heavy. For three more days, the police found and lost the trail, seeing much more bloody wool. But they didn't find the tiger, though they now knew it had ranged about seven miles. Though their quest had been unsuccessful, the police came away believers, sure that the tiger lived in the tea tree and used the ranges when the lowlands were flooded by heavy rains. Sightings continued, including one in March 1895, in which a young man claimed he'd seen a yellow tiger and that his dogs had fled in terror just before the beast had started to chase him. And, of course, the doubters continued to have their fun. In June 1895, a wag wrote in the bulletin, The Tantanula tiger has now been seen for the 98th time in SA by a man who could have shot the animal, but his gun was not loaded, and also he had forgotten to take it with him. A comparison of the descriptions given on the several occasions the tiger has been seen produces wonderful results. The tiger is apparently a cow-shaped beast with blue, green and yellow spots. It has three different tails, respectively 10 feet, 12 feet and 60 feet long. And one reliable citizen who has lived at Tantanula for 30 years and was once a fisherman and detective, and can therefore be believed, says the tiger has three ears and two horns, the latter four times the size of an ordinary cow's, and barks like a dog. Through 1895, there were sightings of the Tantanula tiger every month or so, including several around German Creek's Duck Hole Swamp. John Livingston sent two men and a black tracker to stake out the area for a week. But they had competition. Thomas Donovan from Nelson on the Glenelg River was a crack shot who'd spent many years hunting in the bush. Donovan had been on John Livingston's second expedition. More recently, he'd been on the prowl for the tiger near Albrecht's Creek. But after two sightings by reliable witnesses on an estate near Mount Salt, Donovan and his partner William Taylor arrived in this area on Tuesday the 21st of August. The men meant business. Donovan had a Winchester repeating rifle while his mate had a double-barrelled gun, one firing shot and the other large bullets. They consulted with estate manager R.G. Watson and told him they planned to spend a week or more in search of the beast. Mr. Watson told them to start their hunt on a range four miles west of Mount Salt, where the most recent sightings had been. Donovan and Taylor struck out, camping the night about halfway to their destination. They got an early start and hiked to the appointed spot, arriving just before dawn. The sun had barely cracked the horizon when the men saw something out of the ordinary. About 350 yards away across the plain, a flock of sheep was clearly in distress, disturbed by a large animal. The hunters were too far away to see it clearly, but at this distance it didn't look like a tiger. Whatever it was, the beast was singling out sheep and trying to attack them. 
the men crept closer until they were about 100 yards away. As they watched, the beast knocked a sheep over and sat over it on its haunches. Seizing the opportunity, Donovan raised his Winchester rifle, took steady aim and fired. The beast was hit, hard. But rather than drop, it bolted, running away as fast as it could go, with Donovan and Taylor giving chase. After more than 200 yards, the creature tumbled, fell to earth and didn't get up. Approaching cautiously, Donovan and Taylor found the animal dying. Soon, it was still. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The bullet had entered just below the right shoulder blade, pierced the heart, and exited through the ribs on the left side. What the men saw dead on the ground in front of them wasn't a tiger. It looked like a male dog, but no breed of dog they'd ever seen before. Hastily, the men took the body to Mount Salt. There, Mr Watson, the estate manager, was astonished, and though he didn't know what it was, he felt sure this was the sheep killer Mount Gambier was in a state of wild excitement upon receiving the news that the beast had been shot and its carcass was to be put on public display. This time, the nightmare really was over. Just before 2pm, Thomas Donovan arrived in Mount Gambier with the body, handing it over to a taxidermist named Mr Marks. Dozens of people crowded around the taxidermist shop, hoping for a glimpse of the process, while Donovan told his story to the Border Watch newspaper. Everyone speculated about what it was that he'd shot. Too big for a dingo. Maybe a dingo crossbred with a larger dog? Mr Marks, the taxidermist, and several others who had been to Germany and other parts of Europe declared it was neither. They agreed it was a European or Syrian wolf. It stood close to three feet and was nearly five feet from snout to tail. The beast had a wolf-like head, 10 inches from the back of its skull to its nose, and 13 inches from ear tip to ear tip. Its teeth were almost an inch long. The fur was dark brown along the back and tail, and fawn and grey on the head, sides, belly and flanks, while its powerful legs were a yellowy colour. The paws more closely resembled those of a wolf than a dog, and made a track 4.5 inches wide marrying up with the prints that had been cast in 1893 at Mr John's yard. The following day, the taxidermist Mr Marks, after consulting his books, definitively declared it was a European wolf. The Border Watch newspaper, quoting at length from his reference book, did note that those who saw the animal now stuffed in one of Mr Mackenzie's clothing storerooms should note it didn't correspond in every detail to a wolf, but the points of identity with Canis lupus considerably outweigh the differences. By Thursday night, Thomas Donovan had received eight or nine telegrams from Adelaide businessmen asking how much he wanted for the tiger. But he kept it for himself, charging over 400 people that week one shilling to gaze at the animal. 
Donovan would soon take it to Adelaide Zoo and would for years after display it in his hometown of Nelson before eventually selling it to the Tanzanula Hotel. But in those first few days after Thomas Donovan shot the wolf, some of those who'd been the most vocal believers in a beast roaming the country now didn't believe that this was that creature. John Livingston wasn't satisfied it was the same animal described by so many witnesses. One such witness, Mr Unger, who'd followed the creature on his horse at close range, was absolutely sure it wasn't the same animal. So too was Mr Houston, who'd seen it just a few weeks ago at Duck Hole Paddock. However, Mr McClay, who'd also spotted it in that area, reckoned it was the same beast, as did young Donald Smith. The border watch had to agree with the doubters. At a distance, the newspaper reasoned, the animal would appear to be a dog. Closer up, it would resemble a wolf. However frightened one might be at it, it seems inconceivable that the idea of a tiger should come to mind, their correspondent wrote. That said, how could it not be the creature? It is highly improbable, he wrote, that two such animals as a wolf and a tiger should be roaming in the same locality in this district. Unless, of course, some witnesses had actually seen a thylacine, the Tasmanian tiger, believed long extinct on the mainland. And we'll return to that possibility soon. In August 1895, though, conversation turned to how a European wolf had wound up in the South Australian countryside. One theory was that the wolf had survived a shipwreck on the rugged South Australian coastline. Another, offered by the Adelaide Zoo's director, was that it was a crossbred wolf that had escaped from a Victorian zoo where several such specimens had once been kept. Another poet, calling himself Old Enfield, chronicled the capture, controversy and the clamour of the crowds. Skilled Marx, the taxidermist, says there's not much room to doubt. He's an aged and full-grown wolf, of which we read about. Soon he was stuffed and ready for public exhibition, and throngs soon gathered around the door, eager for admission. And when you got inside the room, among the thickening crowd, you'd hear conjectures from all sides and exclamations loud. Some said he was a cross between a dingo and a dog, while some were sore perplexed, and they were left quite in a fog. No matter what his pedigree, you really must admit, tis well from such an animal the country now is quit. except the country wasn't quit of the beast. On the very same day the wolf was first exhibited, a youth named Mounts, working for a Mrs. Wall, on the range between Tantanula and the coast, said he saw the creature in broad daylight. The animal, he said, was unquestionably a tiger and not a wolf or dog. In the next few years, the Tantanula tiger would be seen repeatedly in the district. But gradually, memory of the tiger began to fade, revived only now and again by sightings of what were called Tantanula tigers in Victoria and even New South Wales. Then, as the first decade of the 20th century got underway, Tantanula's graziers were again suddenly losing sheep in huge numbers. One grazier, James Chant, reckoned he was losing as many as 200 sheep per year. In December 1910, three hunters from Tantanula drove down to the Lake Bonnie Flats for a day of shooting on this grazier's land. The men started working a big scrub paddock, but as a southwest wind picked up, they were hit by a dreadful stench. The awful smell of death was coming from a dense stand of tea tree half a mile away. 
One of the men went to investigate, the stench becoming more powerful as he got closer. Finding a way into the tea tree was difficult until he stumbled upon a hidden but well-worn path. About 25 yards into this dense labyrinth, he beheld a chamber of horrors. Someone had chopped a yard, 20 feet by 30 feet, out of the middle of the thick tea tree. All around in this space were freshly killed sheep and lambs, and more rotting carcasses besides, while overhead on wires hung bloody sheepskins. Another of the hunters arrived, and the two men were astonished to find a second hidden yard, even larger than the first, which contained 42 recently slaughtered sheep and lambs piled two and three deep, all of which bore the brand of grazier Mr. Chant. Beside the recently killed animals were the rotting remains of dozens and dozens of other sheep. Overcome with revulsion, the men beat a retreat, telling their companion what they'd seen, the trio then informing Mr. Chant before going to the police. While the police tried to keep the story quiet, details leaked out and the killing ground became a morbid tourist attraction. Meanwhile, locals at the Tantanula Hotel were, in early January 1911, amused by the sudden appearance of a tramp called Weary Willie, who seemed to be asking a lot of questions. Locals were also getting fed up with the police who didn't seem to be making any progress in bringing the sheep killer to justice. Then, in the hotel, on the evening of the 5th of January 1911, all eyes were on the tramp Weary Willie, who had just arrested a cadaverous 40-year-old Tantanula creep named Robert Charles Edmondson. The hobo was, in reality, Detective Herbert Allchurch, sent from Adelaide in disguise to snoop around and find out who'd been selling sheepskins on the sly. In the weeks that followed, Detective Allchurch elicited more information and discovered five other concealed slaughter yards and shearing stations. It seemed thousands of sheep had been stolen and killed. Robert Charles Edmondson, the new Tantanula tiger, was every bit the newspaper sensation his four-legged predecessor had been, and hundreds of people went to see these bush slaughter yards, with photographers even selling souvenir postcards. The committal hearing of Robert Charles Edmondson was held on the 18th of January 1911, with him charged with killing 76 of Mr Chance's sheep. The accused's accomplice, 20-year-old labourer James Bald made a full confession. He'd made good money helping Edmondson round up, kill and skin sheep. But in December, when their lair had been discovered, the older man had threatened to blow his brains out if he said anything about their crimes. When Edmondson went to trial in April in Mount Gambia, he pleaded guilty and admitted to also having stolen sheep in 1899 in Horsham, Victoria. He promised to turn over a new leaf and said he'd only stolen sheep to support his wife and three children. The judge wasn't really buying it. It was not, he said, a case of falling into sudden temptation. The present offence has been going on for a very considerable time before it was discovered. And the fact that the accused had carried firearms about the country threatening to shoot people showed that he had some disregard for human life. Robert Charles Edmondson was sentenced to six years hard labour. The tiger caged, read the headline of Adelaide's Evening Journal. But Edmondson didn't stay caged nearly long enough. Nor was his other, more monstrous, previous alleged crime publicised during or after the trial. 
1905, Edmondson had been accused of raping the 15-year-old daughter of a man he'd been working for. But because the testimony of this pregnant victim, her brother and mother, was deemed too precise by the magistrate, the charge was dismissed and Edmondson walked free. Edmondson was released on Christmas Eve in 1914, having served just over half his sentence on the sheep-killing conviction. But the Tantanula Tiger's monstrous impulses still lurked inside him. In September and October 1917, Edmondson sexually assaulted two sisters aged 9 and 11. The first rape took place in a Tantanula paddock, the second in his favoured lair, the tea trees. Caught again by Detective Herbert Allchurch, Edmondson shrugged off the offences, saying, No harm was done and nothing serious happened. He thought the crimes trivial compared to his sheep-stealing conviction, and in the eyes of the law at the time, he was right. The maximum penalty was just two years jail, which he said isn't so bad. When Edmondson was tried in the Supreme Court in Adelaide on the 14th of January 1911 on two charges of indecent assault, he entered a plea of not guilty, with his wife providing a statement that gave him an alibi. Gentlemen, he said to the jury, I am absolutely innocent of this charge brought against me. The jury deliberated for just 10 minutes before returning guilty verdicts. As for the four-legged Tantanula Tiger, it was immortalised in 1945 by poet Max Harris. Building on the work of lesser-known bards of the late 19th century, the Tantanula Tiger is widely considered his best work. In 1962, questions about what exactly had been seen by witnesses were raised again when, across the Victorian border, local inhabitants swore they'd seen a Tasmanian tiger. A blurry photo was captured and plaster casts were taken of paw prints, though experts reckoned these belonged to a dingo. But thylacine reports continued and in 1968, Walkabout magazine did a special investigation, speaking to people in coastal southeastern South Australia and northwestern Victoria who swore they'd seen the thylacine. Yes, I saw him, said Jack Victory, a Parks Commission worker. It was like a cross between a fox and a kangaroo. He had a head like a dog, yet a rump with a tapering tail like the kangaroo. His general colour was brown, but he was striped grey in the rear. I am positive thylacines exist down here. The Walkabout article said more than a hundred people had reported the creature, including a busload of people who'd said a thylacine had run beside the vehicle for more than a mile. In the 50 years since that article, sightings of thylacines continue in southeast and South Australia, with the most recent cluster just a few years ago, including several creatures captured on intriguing videos. Thylacine enthusiasts, and there are a lot of them, hope that one day they'll have conclusive proof of the animal's existence. Should that be the case, the Tantanula tiger story will have to be rewritten. In the meantime, there is one place you can be assured of seeing the wolf shot by Thomas Donovan back in 1895. That's the Tantanula Tiger Hotel, where the taxidermied beast still holds pride of place in its glass case. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. If you've enjoyed listening to Forgotten Australia, I'd love it if you could take the time to rate and or review at iTunes. If you want to know more about this and other forgotten stories and see photos of the people and places you've been hearing about, visit my webpage, ForgottenAustralia.com. There, you'll also find information about my new book, Australia's Sweetheart, which is about our forgotten movie star, Mary Maguire. 
This podcast was written and produced by me in Katoomba, New South Wales, on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.